Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. We're back discussing depositions. This is a multi-part series. The first area we covered is deposition strategy, general strategies. And then we moved on to how to prepare for a deposition. Today, we're going to talk about how to take the deposition. John, if you had to boil it down to one big overall rule about how to take a deposition, how would you characterize it? I'll tell you the top three things that are most important in taking a deposition. Number one, listen. Number two, listen. And number three, listen. I think that's the most important thing you can do in a deposition. I think a good guiding rule as you do it more and more, you learn and need to keep in mind, you are not there to just ask the questions you planned to ask or find out information. I mean, obviously, you know, there's information you need to find out. The purpose of everyone that you need to keep in mind is to make your case better. And you need to be thinking about that the entire time you're taking the deposition. For instance, Did you get an answer to your question? I can't tell you how many times I've read a deposition and a good question is asked and the witness evades answering the question. The answer is asked again, maybe a second time, and the evasion continues. And here we are with a good question that went unanswered in the deposition. The other thing, too, is when you do get a good answer, you got to decide whether you want to clarify, maybe you want to pin the witness down. And here's what I mean by that. If you haven't been in trial and you haven't had to use a deposition to cross-examine a witness at trial, to cross-examine them with their prior inconsistent statement in the deposition, if you haven't gone through that process, I don't think you can really appreciate what you need to try to do in a deposition almost without exception in trial. You'll take a deposition of a witness, you'll get a very good admission from that witness, and lo and behold, they're on the stand at trial and you're waiting to cross-examine. During their direct, they do a really nice job of weaving around that question that you asked. Finding a way to wiggle out of it. Wiggle out of it. You didn't close the box and hammer it down on all four sides. Right, it's explaining it, it's undermining it and you're sitting there with your transcript in hand and the highlighted portions, you can't wait to get up there, and they've pretty much snuffed it out, nullified it, and undermined it before you get to do the cross. So when I say listen, you really want to, like you said, Tim, close the box. And oftentimes, while if the witness is trying to be evasive and they're an experienced witness or they've been prepared well just to try not to agree with what you're saying and the way you say it, they may think they're being evasive and answer it in a way that you can just turn it around on them and take their words. And that admission ends up being just as good or better. You just have to pay attention to what they say because oftentimes they'll give you inroads to close the box on them. Yes. I remember one of the stories of the many that you've told me, John, is about this topic where you had earlier in your career, you had gotten some good admissions from a defendant doctor, I think. And then the defense lawyer put the doctor on the stand at trial in their case and like found a way to wiggle out of all of it and a way around all of it. And I think you said what you did is you just kept sitting at your table when it was your turn to cross and said, wow, doctor, that was amazing. That was really impressive. When did you come up with that? Yeah. And that was <laughs> that was one where it was a whole different explanation for what the doctor did during this. It was a surgery, actually. And in the deposition, he was very straightforward and forthcoming and explained what happened and how it happened. 
And then all of a sudden we had a tumor at trial. There was no tumor in the deposition. There was no tumor in the operative report. That was one actually where I pinned him down fairly well and couldn't get out of the box, so to speak. So created a whole new box. (laughs) (laughs) It was a whole new issue, which didn't play well. Experts are trained not to answer your question. And they just are. And some of them are very, very good at it. They're all good at it. Some are very, very good at it. If you have any trouble with the expert answering your question or providing information on a particular issue in your case, one way to do it is to flip the tables on them and just establish you're an expert here. You understand that whatever opinions you're going to give at trial in this case, I'm entitled to ask you about them and the basis for those opinions. So we're not going to hear anything from you about that. Exactly. Is that right? I've asked you 18 different ways from Sunday. That corporate rep depot at works, also an expert's depot. If you're not able to tell me anything about this topic, can I assume that we won't hear one word from you at trial about it? And that usually gets them opening up and starting to pay attention to your questions. My outline tends to be answers that I'm looking for rather than questions for these exact reasons. And I don't exactly know what the witness will say sometimes, but I have a pretty good idea sometimes based upon medical records or other information in the file. So if I have that in front of me, the answer instead of questions, I'm not letting go of that thing until I either get it or it's not there. The best quality you can have, I think, is tenacity. Just you are not going to stop on a topic until you get the admission you need. And it's really interesting. You know, I teach law school civil trial litigation, and you watch young lawyers to be trying to take simulated depositions, and they just run through these red flags. And you got to stop them and say, did you hear that answer? That witness just said, I almost always make sure I check the safety equipment. They go, okay. And then they go into the next question. And they said, almost always. That should be like a huge red flag and clanging bells. And this stuff goes on all the time. Sometimes you really, you get just a dynamite answer, a wonderful comment or an answer. And the witness probably knows and recognizes they shouldn't have said it. But you don't want to highlight it sometimes. You don't want to go back and try to box them in. You just let it sit there. Act like it wasn't a big deal and move on. Right. And a lot of times, if there's a good lawyer on the other side, they'll clean it up on cross. But a lot of times they won't. And One example of that, we had a case where a truck broke down in the fast lane of a highway and caused an accident. And our theory was the driver didn't have flashers on. He didn't have the triangles out and so on. And during the deposition, the corporate rep of the company when asked questions about the service of the vehicles. And one of the questions was how long they keep these vehicles because it was an old vehicle with a lot of miles. And he said, we drive it till it drops. That's what he said. It wasn't me taking that deposition. It was somebody else in the office and they let it go. They didn't follow up with that. And that became our theory, not just a good question, but we changed our entire theory in the case based on that testimony that You know, it was maintenance. Maintenance is why, rather than blame it on the driver, we had a maintenance claim, and it was just because we actually listened to what the corporate rep had said. And when you get that kind of an answer where honesty popped out, I often think my enemy is to delay, to just sit there because they might think about it more and then self-correct their own answer. So I try to pop another question in really quick, just keep the thing going. Yeah. When we say, listen, 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 it's not just with your ears. I mean, it means pay attention to the witness in their entirety. Watch their body language, their tone of voice. You can tell by their body language, their tone of voice, their delay in answering that they're starting to feel uncomfortable. If they start crossing their arms, suddenly touching their mouth or face, looking away when answering, those can be clues that 
that is a topic you need to now focus heavily on because they're uncomfortable about it, which means it's something they probably talk to their lawyer about. They're uncomfortable about that topic. What I try to do in depositions, if it's a witness that I've never had before and I don't have transcripts on them, or if they're new to the expert witness field, I will start with some really good, easy conversational type questions and get them relaxed, ask them, what do you think about this? And tell me about your education. And you get a lot of admissions that way, especially if it's somebody that hasn't been through the process before. If you think there's going to be a part of it that's going to be really contentious, I try to be very cordial and conversational with the witness in the beginning to get all the admissions I think I can get before it takes a turn where we're basically adversaries and they're fighting with me and then they might not give me the same admissions after we've started fighting. So here's the next topic. I know in Missouri, a deposition is a deposition. There's not a discovery deposition and a trial deposition. If you take a deposition, it can be used at trial. And a lot of the depositions most of them probably of an expert is part discovery and part cross-examination material, and a lot of them end up getting played at trial. We'll play portions of the defendant's experts and stuff in our case. So how do you, in terms of an expert and strategy, how do you approach that issue? Even if I'm in a different jurisdiction where they differentiate between discovery and trial depots, you never know if that depot might end up being played or have to be played at trial because even in like federal court or Illinois, there's rules about if the witness becomes unavailable, that depot might end up being the thing that gets played. So... We're used to that because in Missouri, all depots are evidence depots, but I treat it even in jurisdictions where they differentiate as though that depot might get played. I mean, you're there to get information, explore, and then on admissions, you want to drill down to a short, clear, simple question and answer. But even if you're not going to play it at trial, you want that short, simple, very clear question and answer, anticipating that they're going to try to fight you about it at trial and you can pull it up and say, here in the depot, you were asked this seven-word question that's clear as a bell and gave a clear admission. What's going on now? One of the other things that we talked about earlier was having a plan, knowing what you want to get out of the witness. And you can start with the elements of your case. If it's agency, for instance, what are the elements of agency that you need to show? If it's a defective product, what is it that you need to show? What are those elements? And also with an expert, if it's an expert you're deposing, you may want to exclude testimony. That's something that you always, you need to be prepared for that. If you've got an idea generally of what they're saying, you need to figure out how can I attack the basis of that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the main goals you can have coming into a depot is I don't want this person to be able to talk about this topic, this topic, this topic. I know they're going to address this, but I want to exclude as much as I can. You get into the weeds in a depot where you're using technical terms and you start trying to use the language the other person is using to be able to get them to say certain stuff. I think it's incredibly important to always keep in mind who your audience is and your audience is always the jury. And you want to take complicated matters and you want to do everything you can to make a good easily understandable record using terms that anybody can understand. You want to be able to present a depot if you have to play it in an organized, easy to understand manner because you'll lose people. If it's like disjointed, you're using words that, you know, you wouldn't know if you hadn't just researched and spent two years working on the case. Nobody else is going to get it. And you want the order to be organized and in an easy to understand manner. If you're jumping all around the map, people will be like, I don't know where you're at. And then they stop paying attention. One situation where I do jump around, and that's where it's a motivated witness who doesn't want to answer the question. And sometimes I'll sense that, and I'll know I'm not going to get the the direct approach isn't going to work. And I might think, okay, 
put a pin in that and come back in a different context. And sometimes it slips out. You can jump around like that. And a lot of times I'll come back at the depot. I write down the admissions as I get them and I'll come back in the depot and go, okay, so here's the things you agreed to, right? And then you do it. And that's the part you're going to play. Here's these 10 things. Boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, well, I, I, I mean, you said it, you said it. You agreed to all that already. Right? Yours, you bought it. Yeah. Ah, but I didn't know how bad it was going to be when you put it all together. <laughs> a lot of times what the witness is saying and wants to say will actually open the door to get in evidence that you otherwise couldn't get in. Yeah. And I'll give you a couple examples of that. I do a lot of automotive product work. And the experts that we see in those cases, the defense experts, love to talk about how safe the vehicle is or how safe the company is. For instance, one company, one case I had... The expert couldn't stop talking about how crash dummies were made by this manufacturer and they were the first to use them and they were the first with this safety thing and that safety thing. At the same time, they had a bunch of litigation against them for failure to recall and I think it was airbag problems and ignition switch problems, all of this. And you really don't want that testimony. You're not eliciting it. I don't think you can open the door yourself and then claim that because the door was open, you get evidence in. I can tell you this, if you got a product case and the witness's testimony, the experts is, this particular product is not defective versus this is a perfectly safe or one of the safest products. I think that's a whole different ballgame in terms of what you can get into evidence about other claims, other lawsuits, and so forth. Yeah, I agree. What about the situation, especially for some of our, our younger listeners, the newer lawyers? You get bullied. You get bullied by the other lawyer. Speaking objections, coaching the witness. What do you do in that situation? I mean, you simply cannot allow it to happen. You have to have a mindset that you are not going to allow anyone to stop you from doing what you need to do and just keep building your record while they're doing it and keep warning them. Like, I'm building a record about what you are doing. There's going to be emotion about it. As a professional, I'm asking you to please stop it. You know you're not, you aren't supposed to give these coaching objections and try to intimidate me from asking my questions. I'm just not going to allow it. You can't allow speaking objections or signaling from opposing lawyers like head knots. What do you do if it just keeps going on? You say all of that nice stuff and professional and they just continue to keep it up. What do you do then? I think you have to terminate the depot and make clear on the record that you intend to continue the depot, but you're going to seek assistance from the court and either ask a special master to oversee the depot at their cost, in addition to whatever sanctions may be appropriate, or for the court to oversee the depot, although judges typically don't want to don't want to do that. They're very busy already. But if they're not going to stop and it's really harming your case and hindering your ability to do what you need to do, you have to stop the depot, in my opinion. And before you stop it, you might get to a point, and I'm sure this has happened to a lot of us, where you start commenting on those things as they are happening because the record won't show it sometimes. Yeah. It'll be things that are visual when there's not a video deposition, for instance. Every time. Counsel, you're nodding your head yes, and then the witness said yes. I'm making a record of it, and I do it every time. And sometimes I right. go, ah, I'm sorry, it's not intentional, which means they just admitted they did it. Yeah. So you have to make a record of that. John, when you talk about the bullying, I find that it runs a whole gamut from just outrageous cackling and taunting you, that kind of thing, especially for young lawyers. I used to get it when I was younger a lot. I think particularly young female lawyers get treated especially harshly by some older lawyers. They think they can intimidate them, and that's really sad to see. And it can range from subtle to very blatant. And I think it can get into your head if you're not prepared or if you're a long, young lawyer, you can be distracted by this. And that's exactly what they want you to do. They want those voices coming in your own head. 
And now you're filling your brain with things like, I need to go faster. Like, no, you don't. You don't have to go faster. You've got to do well. you got to do this thing well. That's why you're here. The cognitive research is clear that when you are anxious and stressed like that, your creativity goes down. To answer, you know, your initial question, John, was how do you handle it? And I think it, it also depends on how effective it is. So I want to talk about some examples of what's done that I think is inappropriate that people just accept that isn't. For example, misstates the evidence, misstates prior test. Those are all completely inappropriate objections, in my opinion. That's telling the witness to either say, I don't know or no. And sometimes I will just have the prior depots available or take a break and go get them and the documents and meticulously lay the foundation to shame them from stopping doing it. But at the same time, Sometimes what the other lawyer is doing when they're making coaching objections or nodding their head or saying, if you know, or misstates the evidence, isn't affecting the witness. And they're still giving you everything. And when that's happening, I just ignore it. It's really bad when it affects the witness. When it's at its worst, it's witness coaching, which you should never put up with. Even if it's not having that effect on the witness, one of the bad things that can happen, probably the second worst thing is, you losing your concentration. Yeah. And a lot of times that's what that's about. And you just don't want to lose your concentration. Everybody should make an outline for every deposition and spend quite a bit of time on it and make sure you're covering everything in that outline that you need to cover. Never get married to your outline. If the witness is taking you somewhere that you want to go, go with them and, and see what you can find. But the bottom line is you don't ever want to leave a deposition without getting an answer to every question that you wanted to ask take a break or uh, considering yeah. based on what happened, whether right. you still, you need to at least consider right. whether you still, whether you still need to ask it, but go out. I do that. at breaks in the deposition. I'll look at what I've already covered. I'll look at what's coming up in the outline and maybe cross it off or add some things to it. I mean, oftentimes we'll call each other on a break from a depot and say, here's what's happening. I'm thinking I don't need to cover this anymore and bounce ideas off of each other as colleagues. What do you think? Do you think I still need to address this or not? Right. Just don't leave the deposition without having discussed everything that you think the witness is going to say or could say at trial. Part of it, too, is if you don't know your file inside and out, if you're not intimately familiar with the facts in the case, not just the facts, but the issues, the elements of your case, if you're looking stuff up on your outline or on a piece of paper, you're not going to be able to do a good job at that deposition. You're just not. That stuff is a given. You need to know the file inside and out. You need to know where you want to go before you start the deposition. You need to know what you need from this witness, what's going to help you, what that witness is going to say that's going to hurt you. You need to think. You need to think it through. One of the things I do, circling back a little bit to the anticipating, you know, if it's a lawyer I've had a bunch of cases with and I know the obstructive and coaching objections they make, like if you know, misstates the evidence, misstates prior testimony. And I know that with this lawyer, they're going to do that. Oftentimes, right off the bat, like with their expert, or after I ask their name, I will cover those things to try to shame them from not doing it and say, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Expert, you understand I'm only here to find out information you know, right? You certainly know. I mean, you're a professional. What You know not to guess, not to speculate, so you're not going to do that. So you don't need anybody to tell you during this deposition when I ask you a question only to answer if you know. You already know that, right? Yeah. And if I ask you a question that rephrases an answer you gave me, you're certainly capable of telling me if I'm misstating your opinion or your prior testimony. If I ask you if a fact is true, you're certainly capable of telling me if you think that misstates the evidence you've reviewed. You don't need anybody to tell you all of that, right? And then sometimes that leads to it not happening for the rest of the depot. That's a good approach. That is good. I learned that from your brother. 
Tony Simon, I read a depot where he did it, and I was like, that's brilliant. So let me throw another topic out here, another issue that comes up in depositions. When can you take a break? And what I mean by that is not, you know, okay, we're going to take a break in five minutes to go use the restroom or give the court reporter a break. But let's say you have the witness on the ropes, and you're getting into an issue that you can just tell by how they're answering the question. They look a little bit nervous. They're starting to sweat a little bit. And the other side says, well, we're going to take a break now. I mean, you can put on the record that I believe this is an opportunistic time for you to try to take a break. We're on an important topic. I don't want to take a break. I want to finish this topic. But there's nothing you can really do, especially if it's their client. Right. And you can't take a break in the middle of a question. I mean, if oh, questions, right. Well, certainly we're not suggesting that. But I've seen situations where that happens. You got the witness on the ropes and all of a sudden we're taking a break. And it's not as egregious because they might wait a question or two. But I think the right thing to do is what you just said, is that to say, look, Give me about five more minutes and I'm going to wrap this issue up and then we can all take a 10 minute break. But, you know, I've been on the other side of it early in my career. You might remember, John, we had that temporary traffic control case. I think it was Henderson and our expert was being deposed and he gave an answer that gutted our case 10 minutes into his depot, 10 minutes into his depot. And he gave the answer and I like I said, we're stopping. We got to take a break. And the other lawyer was like, are you kidding me? The record's going to be clear that you did it. And I said, I know. And you just got to bite the bullet because you have to go fix it with your expert and talk about what they said. And the other lawyer is going to make a record. Like, just to be clear, we were 10 minutes into the depot. You gave this answer. You have something you want to add or change about it. And they'll make a good record. But it's better than losing your case. Yeah. I handled a class action where it was against a uh, large chain of auto repair shops. And they charged an environmental fee. And the explanation on the invoice was that this environmental fee was to assist their compliance with federal and state law regarding environmental issues. So in the corporate rep deposition, so he's a corporate rep, not a regular witness. I asked, what are the laws that this fee is charged to help satisfy? And he said, I don't know. And I thought, well, I'm just getting started here. And I asked another question. The attorney did take a break between the question and the answer. Oh, they're not allowed and to so, do that. And so they didn't ask. He said, I'm going to go out and talk to my client in the hall. And I was, you know, getting all steamed, of course. And they came back and he gave the same answer. So oh, it, it didn't change. That's fine. But, but I was thinking that, you know, you can only control the things you can. Well, I would say on that issue, if you are the one asking the questions and they want to take a break, just interject and say, I'm going to get to a stopping point in five or 10 minutes and we can take a break at that time. And that should solve the issue for you. And if it's somebody, if it's your own witness being deposed, same kind of thing. I think you got to afford that courtesy also. What I would do is I'll interject and say, whoever it is, the attorney, Tim or Eric, I'll say, when you get to a good stopping point, could we please take a 10 minute break? And that's, that's, I think that's the way to do it. Yeah. So what about this? When do you intentionally hold something back? If you have a very good idea, you're trying that case and they say something and you know you're going to blow them up and you don't think the other side knows how you're going to blow them up and won't be ready for it, I'll hold it back. If you know that case ain't, is not settling and you're going to try it, you need to think about, do I want to feel good right now about how I blow them up and then they can find a way around it at trial or do I want to do the best thing for my client and feel good at trial when I do it? Yeah, I always err on the side of holding it back. And part of that, too, is you can always disclose it at some point. If you get close to resolving the case and you think that that fact or whatever you have on somebody's expert might get the parties closer, get them to put more money on the table, nothing prevents you after a deposition's over from telling the other side what you have on somebody. 
Yeah. And do you have the goods for sure for trial? Sometimes you need that witness to make a little more clarification about that thing that you think is devastating. Then you might need to deal with it at a deposition, see if you can clean it up and make it a good thing. The other thing, too, is, you know, they might have an explanation for it that you're not aware of. And that's something, too. If it's something you think they might have a good explanation for, you might want to lean toward using it in the deposition. This is something else we touched on earlier the use of voice inflection, and I'm not talking about the other side and objecting, speaking objections. Your own. Your own voice. We communicate so much non-verbally. Eric, there are studies you and I have talked about where 80% of communication is something other than the words coming out of your mouth. It's your tone, your voice inflection, your demeanor, how you're sitting, what your facial expression looks like. You can ask a question in a way where the answer doesn't freaking matter. You can ask a question in a way with the tone, with the right words, that everybody, when they hear it, is already agreeing with you, and it doesn't matter what the witness says. Yeah, I'll give you an right. example. One that comes to mind right now, if I'm taking somebody who's the safety director of a company, and I ask that safety director who is in charge of X yeah. at your company, and they say, I don't know, I'll immediately go change my voice inflection and say, hold on a second. You've been the safety director there for 15 years. You've been with the company for 38 years. You supervise 45, 50 employees. You report to the vice president. You're here in the capacity as a corporate representative in this case, and we're talking on about safety topic. issues on this topic, and you're telling us that you don't know who has that information or where you would go to get it, and you're right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't if they, matter what if, the if, if they say no <laughs> to that question, I'm delighted. Yeah. If they say yes to the question and change your testimony, and we get the information. Yeah. And you promise me that when 12 jurors are actually staring at you when I'm asking you questions, you promise me you're going to give me the same answer? Yeah, or I'll <laughs> actually, I won't say me. I'll say, are you telling the jury in this <laughs> yeah, case right. as the safety director that you have no idea who is in charge of this recall or whatever it Safety. Is? Safety. Right. <laughs> Sometimes this is about letting my own client be deposed. Sometimes it's an attorney that I know is big. They're big, physically big and loud and maybe intimidating just by their physical presence. And maybe my witness is a small person who's nervous about the whole thing. And so in my prep, I'll often comment on that and I'll build them up that you are in charge of this deposition. You can take your time before you answer a question. You can make sure you need to make sure you understand what the question is. You're the star of this show. There's a bunch of attorneys in suits sitting around the table. And it doesn't matter how big they are or how loud they bark or anything of the sort. You are the most powerful person in this room for this deposition. Yeah. And I think that is sometimes helpful for them to think, I'm a player here. You want to try to build up your client or your expert to make them feel, feel like you're in control. At the same time, on the other side, when I'm the one asking questions, I do everything I can as early as I can to make the witness know uh, they are not in control, <laughs> that I am in control. You are here to talk about what I want to talk about, not just to tell me whatever you want. Well, they do need to tell the truth, right? Yeah. And that's, that's fair game. You know, when we, t we make that witness know they are here to answer questions, they're under an oath, whatever that might mean to them, that they need to answer questions honestly and fully. I think that's fair game. Related to that, in the depot, shift your tone and approach based on your read of the person. 
right? If they're a really honest, nice person who's nervous and just wants to get out of there, just be really nice and direct. You'll get more out of them. And then. you'll get more out of them. If they're a difficult, evasive liar, they've given you permission to treat them as such within reason. But remember, especially if it's recorded, the jury's going to hear the way you're talking to the person. So you better make sure you have permission to speak the way you're speaking and that the jury thinks you've been given permission. All right. This topic has been taking the deposition. We'll be back with more on this topic, a continuing series of many episodes on taking depositions. We'll be back next time with more. So just a reminder that, you know, based upon some of the feedback we're getting, we're hearing from some of you who find these podcasts to be engaging and useful to actual real life trials. And that's great. Share the information about this podcast with your friends, especially your trial lawyer friends. You can do that wherever you find your podcast or, you know, just let your friends know we're here. We really appreciate it. This is Eric Veith. This is John Simon. This is Tim Cronin. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law and tune into other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library, including Heels in the Courtroom and Results Don't Lie. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.